Good morning. This is Hacker Mike coming at you from a beautiful pre-dawn Jersey morning. The star of, of beauty, the planet of Venus, is still strong in the horizon, as well as the god of war, Mars, the planet Mars, in opposition on the other side. It's a great time to be alive, to see these planets next to each other, well not next to each other, but in the sky at the same time, and to just imagine the orbits and how everything must fit together that I get to see these every day when I go for my walk. It's really beautiful. Now, <clears throat> uh, yesterday we had a great uh, session on the history of mathematics and that guy, David um, B, he has quite a few videos. He's got a history of mathematics lecture series on YouTube and I started to watch that and it's really great. So, it's amazing to hear the history of math, to see how things fit together, how they were developed, to get an appreciation for them. And we are going to, um, we're going to learn more about that. Now, on the other side, good morning. On the other side, uh, we really have the issue of uh, dominance in school with this mathematic with this mathematical teaching. It's like you will learn this, and it is relevant. But the way that they teach it, they force it down your throat. They do not make it interesting. It's really just a question of following orders. And the maths are also so important. So it becomes a question of submission or of skill. But it's really more of a motivational issue for me in school than, I mean, okay, I admit I wasn't very good at math. I got easily confused and I had some form of dyslexia. Have some form of dyslexia. I get my rights and lefts confused, my ups and downs. I lose uh, the distinction between them. But um, this whole lecture series has given me new motivation to revisit this topic. Yeah, it's kind of surreal walking down the middle of the street I have my double coffee. I made two coffees. I started this morning to do some uh, work on Hugo or forestry and Hugo. <clears throat> Serverless websites. And um, it's not that easy. My wife was struggling, even with forestry. And um, there's lots of moving parts. 
it's not intuitive and if um, you know if my tool the uh, if my tool the um, click deploy is supposed to be successful at all it's got to do better than that so let me um, let me propose the idea of a domain specific language and domain specific user interface and validation modeling of what the user cares about as the key to a good website so <clears throat> often even if you create a CMS for the user it's not what they care about it's not what they think about um, like my wife wants to list some ingredients so an ingredient would be a domain specific in, um, a domain specific thing which you might want to list you know benefits right and uh, the website should be list displaying these benefits instead of like being organized into blocks and all that really we want to organize the website around things that they care about and have some transformation rules to transform these this language this data into the HTML blocks or whatever but um, I'm really starting to think that something like Haskell or Elm or something is going to be key in capturing user data, allowing them to edit domain-specific data, and then have different transformation rules um, for moving that into the website to really capture how they think about things and apply some type of logic and rules to that. So I think Haskell, Haskell to the rescue, I really do, and we are going to continue on that path just for the user interface and the human interaction, especially for, really for the capturing user specifications and understanding what the user wants. Obviously, I'm sure this has been studied before. Nothing is new in the world. But I think there has to be a better way. And I'm not saying that the user is going to define these languages. I'm just saying that they're going to use them. You know, in all the different websites I've worked on, it's always some kind of domain-specific thing that they're working on. All right, enough of that. So I'm listening to the Künstler cast, and I really should do some clips from this um, episode. But uh, I don't feel like going through the work, and it's not that motivated. But in the recent episode, they're talking about 
foreclosure rates or delinquency rates up that have doubled in mortgages and um, <clears throat> how the government uh, might bail out the economy by hiring people for giving student loans and all these other things. So um, I'm going to continue listening and I'll see if I can find anything clippable and I will come back to this show. Um, yeah, we're live now. It's 5.30 in the morning and I will be broadcasting for the next period of time. So if you want to join, you know where to find me. Yeah, it's funny because in Europe, when you get up early, like really early, the bakeries are working. The baker's in there baking his bread. There was a bakery at the train station in Frankfurt where they opened up, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning or something. And you'd line up with the party ravers, the police and the junkies to get your fresh pretzels. It was great. Right next to my house. But here in America with Panera, they don't open up early. They get open up at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, they're not baking anything in there, it seems. Or if they are, I don't know. Maybe it's just in time. Maybe it's delivered in a truck. I heard from someone uh, <clears throat> who looked into getting a Panera franchise that you have to have a minimum order. You have to buy from them so much dough or bread or whatever, and they don't care how you sell it. They end up giving it away to churches at the end of the night if they can't sell it. So um, <clears throat> bakeries aren't what they used to be. So God bless the bakers. Just wanted to share that with you. Okay, so back to the wall cast. So I think um, we're going to want to start with the, um, the planning of a walk. And then we'll show people different tools for planning your trips. It doesn't even have to be a walk. I mean, you could do this in your car. Then the execution and collecting of data while you go. I mean, sure, we could do this in a car and have a laptop with us and have a driver and just sit there collecting data while we drive and process it. But I find that the walking includes also your healthy aspect. One of the few things you can do for enjoyment now in the COVID times, and it definitely improves your spirits and your health. And seeing beauty creates oxytocin, which is also great, good for your bones, supposedly. Makes you happy at least. <clears throat> Endorphins. And I'm now also going shopping on my trips. Today I brought my backpack.
yeah, I need to now check what files I've actually uploaded and which ones I haven't and start syncing all of these files with each other. What a pain. Gotta work on that. Some type of file syncer. Well, S3 is pretty damn cheap. So, um, Yeah, so let's think about these things. Spot instances. Spot instances. Yeah. Thinking about AWS spot instances. Well, I keep on getting off topic. I really not so interested in this uh, talk about the walk. I need to do some more research. Just giving you an outline. I need to revisit this topic because my mind is really going in other places. Might be lacking in self-discipline. So, um, we're gonna stop this tape now. And we're going to uh, change the topic. We're going to listen to something else. And I will get back to you. All right. So now I'm going to torture you guys with my voice today. So I was asked to um, contribute a talk to the um, Software Freedom Kosovo a conference that I helped start. And they're going online this year. So I get to record a video and submit it and I've been thinking about what I want to do so <clears throat> I want to talk about my walks and I want to present for walkers uh, open source software that they can use on their way so um, and ideally I would actually do a walk and record it and then um, capture some data from there and then analyze it in my talk and have clips from that walk. So um, I'm thinking 
of James Joyce in Ulysses, where it's a stream of consciousness, and he spends a day in Dublin walking around in a uh, symbol of infinity. Um, so I'm thinking that would be uh, something interesting to try. And, uh, you know, most of my walks I do spontaneous. I try to do something different every day. I'm thinking I should plan this one out. And I should show people some tools on planning your walks to maximize their effectiveness in terms of collecting data. So, um, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, show people, like, how to look for missing Wikipedia articles. Right? Or, um, how to, uh, you know, plan out your trip with a map. Uh, I guess we could use OSM and to create a route that you could follow even. Um, and then use some tools to do voice annotations and, um, I think Vespucci or OSM and will let you do voice annotations and pictures on the, on the trail. Um, and collect all that data and then post-process it and um, that would be quite interesting I also think uh, you really want to be able to take your time your GPS trail and slice it up um, into time segments so that the audio is lined up with the location so if you click on a location you can start the audio at that point I mean I always have these crazy ideas of things I'd like to do that are hard <laughs> not everything's easy to do nowadays yeah and this kind of ties into my idea of more types I think we need more types and more information, not just low-level stuff. Like JavaScript, it's pretty low-level, all of these different frameworks. They're all basically wrapping around the computer stuff, but they're not wrapping around how people think about things. And how people interact with them. So, uh... And I'm talking about normal people, not computer people. Even if they have just a fuzzy concept of something, uh, they have a concept. So maybe we need to start with allowing people to kind of declare what concepts they have and capture that information. Kind of like a mind map. And be able to turn that into a uh, a software of kinds of sorts to do queries on it. Knowledge graphs. 
combinations and permutations. It's kind of what I'm getting into. Create schemas and patterns. I'm really liking the Haskell uh, pattern collection, pattern language, pattern matching. It's really amazing. So uh, I really need to spend some more time on that. Not so much spend some time on websites. So maybe I can do Elm. That's what I'm thinking, Elm to the rescue. You know, can we create a high-level user interface for capturing of these knowledge graphs? So let's just kind of break this down, okay? So we have, um, let's say that we go through the effort and we create, allow the user to specify some type of knowledge graph, okay? It's still just data. Even if you have some rules, look at these little baby deer. Even if you have some rules in it, it's still not being fed to the compiler as a compiler type. And I still am not sure how you can lift up data to become a compiler type. But I do know that you can instantiate objects. You know you can instantiate objects of a type. Mama Deer. She's got those radar ears tracking me. Yep, I see you too. And look at those little Bambies, they're so cute. Let me stop and take a picture. So now we're going to listen to a new book network on why, how the left is won. And I'm skipping over some of the introduction. Basically, he's talking about even though the right has won in politics, the left is winning in culture. And he's going to try and explain why. Politically, and Donald Trump in, in the US and uh, Boris Johnson, particularly in the UK, becoming prime minister just last year with a huge majority. But despite all of those successes, at a cultural level, uh, the culture seemed to be shifting to the left uh, quite significantly, and particularly at, at the highest levels, uh, the most sort of uh, highly educated uh, people. And I was interested in, in what was going on there, and it seemed to be much more cultural, and, and so rather than economic. And so this book is an attempt to offer a kind of uh, history of, of how that happened and, and some of the, the forces that were at work underneath the surface. In this next clip, we're going to talk about the definition of the long march. And I do take issue with the guy's pronunciation. It's Ruri Duchka. Duchka. And um, I was once with a girl who studied all of this stuff in Germany. And uh, she talked about it as well. So definitely some history there for me. Now, um, he kind of gives the overview of the uh, uh, Bader-Meinhof 
and the uh, whole uh, issue there and uh, says that um, you know the RAF the Red Army faction was trying to do a violent overthrow and uh, when I first went to Germany I saw pictures of the Bader Meinhof and the wanted pictures in the bank hanging on the wall so that was in the 90s and you believe they were still looking for them um, <clears throat> So uh, that was kind of interesting. I think they were, I think they were in Frankfurt. Even they uh, assassinated one of the bankers in New Frankfurt by uh, blowing up some explosives and having this copper plate that would go through his car, went through the door. So uh, yeah, there was some crazy stuff going on in Germany at the time. Anyway, let me uh, play this clip. It's pretty long, but I think it's a great introduction. And um, he seems to know what he's talking about. Get to your book then, the, the title. Um, well, what is the long march through the institutions and why is it important? Right. So the long march through the institutions is an idea that was, um, well, the phrase was coined by a German radical called Rudi Deutscher in uh, 1967 in Germany. That's an important moment because this is, this is just before the, the famous riots of 1968, uh, a movement of the new left, as it was called, had been growing at this time, uh, particularly in Europe. This was a kind of uh, Western leftism that was really in reaction against some of the, the worst atrocities of um, Soviet communism. They saw things there they didn't like, but they were still trying to hold on to ideas of the left, very idealistic, but still uh, revolutionary committed to the idea that it wasn't about improving Western society. It was about fundamentally transforming it and, uh, and putting something better in, it, in its place. And the more that the new left became concerned with revolution, uh, it, it sort of split in two ways. There was one extreme wing that became committed to violent overthrow. And uh, the, the famous example of that is the Bader-Meinhof gang, the Red Army faction, as they called themselves, which uh, survived for quite a long time and was literally in the business of um, of murdering people, of bombing people, uh, of kidnappings, that kind of thing. Uh, they just thought there was no other way to do what they wanted to do and bring down Western society and put a sort of socialist, communist alternative in its place. Uh, and that even in the UK, there were sort of small versions of that, something called the Angry Brigade. It was never, it was never a huge thing. That Rudi Deutschke was offering an alternative to that. It's important to note he was still a revolutionary. He still wanted to destroy Western society, but he just thought there might be an alternative to violence. And so what he proposed instead was the Long March. This is um, a metaphor taken from uh, Mao's campaigns, Chairman Mao's campaigns uh, in China. And what he was suggesting was a long and quiet revolution where instead of violent overthrow of society, you would do an end run around politics by putting your people slowly and steadily into all the institutions of the culture so that uh, the, the universities, the schools, the churches, um, bureaucracies, whatever, would have people who thought like you did in, in these positions of power and that then that would create um, such change that it would be possible to actually get the revolution that you wanted without having to fire a shot. And uh, he was drawing on older ideas that uh, came particularly from a, 
Italian communist called Antonio Gramsci. And this was just in, in Germany, but it was taken up as well by a very important figure in the new left in America called Herbert Marcuse, who had come over. He was a refugee from Germany because of the war. And he wrote to Deutscher and, and talked about how much he agreed with him. And he was at the time extremely famous in, in the US, a major cultural figure. Uh, and he really embraced this idea as well, that instead of uh, the violence, you would, you would take over the society uh, through taking over its institutions. Right. And uh... Okay, so this next clip, he's going to basically um, try and set the stage and say that what happened is not really conspiracy, but more like a social movement. This isn't a book that says, ha, there were a few Marxists twirling their moustaches and they all went into, you know, and it, and it happened by some cunning plan. The real world doesn't work like that. And in fact, you know, I talk about there are very real uh, campaigns of subversion going on in the West throughout the 20th century, of starting with, um, with, with Russia and um, coming all the way through, certainly people who are inspired by Deutsche and Marcuse and things like that. But most of what happened, as so often in life, is about cock up as much as conspiracy. It's about coincidence and just the ways things happen. I think it's undeniable that what happened is that there was coming out of the 60s after this sort of 1967-68 period where these ideas were floating around, you saw a tremendous shift of power in unelected places within our societies. And so to, to see this in, um, in, in measurable terms, Thomas Piketty, who's um, you know, not, certainly not a a right-winger, uh, famous for his book Capital, arguing um, for, for wealth taxes, um, mm -hmm. did a same ones. Uh, and just looking at uh, political views in, in different economic classes. And basically over the last, let's say, 20 years or so, he sees a very measurable, very distinct um, shift to the left in the, the educated classes. So he calls it the Brahmin left. This is basically the university-going classes uh, just shifted their views that way in a in a very measurable, um, very distinct fashion, happening across multiple countries. And he doesn't he doesn't particularly get into why he offers some some possibilities. But I just think it's in, important to note that there are very very concrete ways that you can look at it and say, well, look, something seems to have happened. Um, and whatever your views on that, uh, it's important to acknowledge that. Also important. Yeah, this next clip is epic. He talks about the mind control of the left in dictating how people can think and what can they say. The training of the children to get ahead by thinking in a certain way and self-censorship. And the actual, they think that there is no possible way that a right wing person could be intellectual. So. This is quite interesting um, to listen to. Let's let's cue this up. There, Kirk. Yeah, I mean, one of the the important things that happens when um, institutions shift to one particular point of view, and this is this is important to understand because people can look at this and be very skeptical because they say, "Well, look, you know, we're smart people. We're not indoctrinated. People people tell us their political views. It doesn't mean that we're won over by them." Well, 
Fine, but but two things happen when you get um, university schools, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with a view that tilts just one way and that they're sharing. One idea is what you're talking about. You don't hear the other side. You forget the other side exists. The idea that there's an intellectual way um, to be conservative um, just becomes something that's not even possible to think about. So so people miss out on a whole raft of ideas and that's that's obviously very important then they can't think those thoughts so it closes mm. the mind down in certain ways and the other thing which is slightly more um subtle and pernicious and i talk about quite a lot in the book is the way that it it teaches you even if you don't agree what's fashionable to think and what's acceptable to say so there's a there's an economist called timur kuran who um i cite in the book and he has this whole uh, theory that he worked out, which um, he he studied a lot Eastern Europe in under communism, where people had to watch what they said very very carefully because of secret police, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and so he thinks about the idea of you know what's the thing that you can say in public and what's the thing you think in private and how different they are, and what happens in when universities are saying, "Oh, this is what you have to believe," or "This is what we believe." This is what is going to get you high marks. This is going to earn you a a sophisticated place in society. So even if you don't uh, agree, even if you aren't won over, you start to know, well, that's what I have to say to get on. And it changes what, you're, what you think that you can actually say in public. So even if um, there isn't an indoctrination, there can still be the, these very chilling effects where uh, even if you still have differing views, you, you find that it's increasingly impossible uh, to say them because of the social pressures. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now the, these calls... Well, guys, that's it. Uh, my time ran up for this episode. Um, I'm already at work, but I just wanted to close this episode out and say that that interview goes on and he talks about the um, Frankfurt School and um, it's really, really a good listen and uh, <clears throat> definitely people should take some time and figure out... Uh, you know, our historical context of our current society. All right, have it. And it really applies to what we're seeing today as well. So have a great day.